Well, good morning, everyone. I'm still distracted by Derek's uh, lack of a beard. I don't know if you saw that. He went from looking like a fossil to a toddler in like one stretch of a moment. It's, it was crazy, but uh, we're glad to have you here this morning. Uh, welcome to Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church, which from we uh, take our name in our theological tradition. It's an exciting Sunday, and we're glad to celebrate it. Um, and I'd like to thank you as well for those of you joining us online via live stream. Though you're separated by distance, you're not separated in spirit, and you are not second rate. You're valued and you're loved. For those of you joining us for the first time or maybe the first time in a while, I'm Pastor Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm pleased to be able to open God's word for you today. But before I do, I wanted to say a special thank you to Pastor Paul. And I know he'd prefer maybe I didn't do this, but I really don't know of any other church or pastor who is so willing to share the pulpit as often as he is with other ministers. Uh, you're truly blessed to have him as a pastor, and he really does put others ahead of himself consistently. He invests in me and invests in the other staff, helps us develop in pastoring and skills, and gives us permission to fail. He's a blessing to me and to this church, and I think he is worthy of double honor, and I think that we ought to honor him. And I want to say thank you for letting me preach this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in Exodus, studying the tabernacle. Pastor Paul has led us through an overview of the entire tabernacle last week, and today we're going to be in, begin looking at its individual components. And we're doing that because the scripture itself gives special attention to each of these components within the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. So let's pray together before we do, and let's ask the Lord to open our minds and our hearts to his scriptures. Would you join me in prayer? Father, all truth is your truth, and I'm incapable of communicating it apart from your Spirit. So today on Pentecost Sunday, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would dwell in our midst the same way it did back then. That you would fill our hearts and our minds, God. That you would, you would let tongues of fire descend upon us. And that you would give us understanding into the very thing your Spirit inspired, the Word of God. I pray that you would open it clearly for me to speak as I should, and that you would open the ears of the hearer and the heart of the hearer, that they would understand and apply as they should. God, I pray your spirit would be in our midst today, working and willing for your good pleasure, and we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen. Amen. The tabernacle, or as this translation puts it, the English Standard Version, which we, we read, is called the Tent of Meeting. It's the place where the people in the Israelite community would come and meet with God. It's literally a place of meeting, a holy place. It's God's house. It's a place of refuge, renewal, and a place of God's presence. It's the place where God meets with people. It's a picture of what God has always desired to do with humanity. The tabernacle was meant to communicate God's desire to be in the midst, in the middle, living among his people. Later, one of the names given to Jesus, which is God incarnate, is Emmanuel, meaning God with us in Hebrew. And the book of Revelation does not end with you going to heaven, by the way. It ends with us resurrected on the earth, living in a city that descends out of heaven with God dwelling in the middle of it. And even now in the new covenant, God follows this same pattern with communion. It's God in us, God with us. The objects in this place of meaning, meeting give us some clues as to what God is saying about his presence. What is God's presence like? 
God wants us to know him, but he can't just tell us, he's got to show us. All the way from Genesis chapter 4, when they begin to call on the name of the Lord, to the Israelites here in Exodus 25, and all the way into 2021 in Massachusetts. God cannot tell us what he's like, he must show us. What is God's presence like? We can't be told, we must be shown. Let's read the passage together. You can find it in Exodus 25. Again, Exodus 25, verses 31 to 40. We'll be focusing on the menorah today, which is this big thing right here. Arguably, this is the most iconic object in the tabernacle, apart from the Ark of the Covenant itself. The word menorah is simply the Hebrew word for lampstand. It it serves today as a symbol for synagogues all over the world, much the same as the cross serves as the signifier for us Christians. It's hard to underestimate the importance of the menorah. Again, we're in Exodus 25, and I'm going to start in verse 31. Exodus 25, starting in verse 31. And you shall make a lampstand of pure gold, and the lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. And three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch. And the third cup excuse me, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms, with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, and the whole of it shall be a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light to the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. May God bless his word and give us understanding. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Allow me to start at the end of the scripture today. Listen to verse 40. This is God speaking to Moses, by the way, telling him all of these things. In verse 40, it says, See that you make them, the objects in the tent, after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 8, verse 15, in the New Testament, it says all the things in the tabernacle are a copy or a shadow of true reality. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 9 says that each of these objects are symbolic in some way. They're meant to communicate something about life that is to come. And the same is true of the menorah, the lampstand. It is a symbol of a greater reality, a clue about the heavenly realm, and more specifically, a representation that tells us something about God himself. Each of these objects give us a piece of the puzzle that answers the question, what is God's presence like? And being that God is infinite, I could literally stand here talking to you about it until I'm old and gray and some of you are dead, and as much as I know you absolutely love to hear me talk, I won't do that to you. But in particular, I want us to take some time and focus on the menorah itself. 
Virtually every religion and culture since time has begun has a reverence for light. It appears in Eastern mysticism and animism, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Light has a powerful symbolic meaning, so much so that in one of the Ten Commandments, God specifically mentions the sun as something we are not to worship. Light gives life. My mother and I were in an endless battle when I was a teenager. I wanted to close my black curtains in my bedroom, and she would call me a child of darkness and would open them every morning, and the light would flood in. Without light, none of our food would grow, and we would wither away. Oxidation plus UV light is actually more effective in purifying water than chlorine chemicals. If the sun disappeared, it would take mere days for most of the plant and animal life, including us, to die. And without proper sun exposure, your serotonin levels begin to drop and you sink into depression because light literally affects your psychology and physiology. There is no life without light. It is a natural inclination of our corrupted human nature to worship it. It is a powerful emblem of God's power and provision. It's a sacred symbol used by God over and over to communicate something about himself. In the ancient world, there was a link between light and life. Light produces life. And today we know this process as photosynthesis. And we see it validated by the advancement of modern scientific knowledge. However, the spiritual principle of light producing life has been known to humanity long before we had empirical proof of it. Before we get into the obvious use of the lampstand, it's important to note what it actually looks like. Listen to verses 31 to 32. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand on one side of it, and three branches of the, of the lampstand out of the other side. God instructs Moses to create this lampstand resembling a tree. It has a stem or a trunk. It has calyxes, which are the protective encasements around buds on a tree, and it has flower blossoms. Verse 34 also says, And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms. It's not just any tree, it is an almond tree. The first time I saw an almond tree, I was actually in Israel with Pastor Paul, where Joshua fought a battle and the sun stands still. And today a tower stands near that site, and close to that building, there's a beautiful almond tree. Uh, I was there in February, and it was really cold and rainy, and I was surprised to see the almond tree in full bloom. It's traditionally used as a symbol of resurrection because it's the first tree in the region to flower early in the year. The almond tree requires the cold and the rain of winter in order to grow. The almond is used throughout the Bible both as a negative and a positive symbol. It's, a, it's used as a symbol because the time between when it blossoms and flowers and produces fruit is a very quick span of time. When God promises judgment to Jeremiah, he uses the image of an almond branch in Jeremiah 1. Why does he do that? Because once you see an almond tree blossoming, it won't be long until its fruit comes. The Hebrew word almond sounds very similar to the words watching and hastening in biblical Hebrew. 
God is watching over his word, and he won't delay. He'll hasten to perform it. One of the many reasons I'm sure that God puts this in the front of the Israelites' eyes is to remind them not to give up, that God is attentive to what he has said, and he's watching over it, that God won't leave them hanging. He's hastening to do what he promised, to wait for the promise, like the almond is patient through the winter, and to expect God to show up like the almond is quick to produce fruit after it blossoms. When I was 19, I felt that the Lord was telling me to teach the gospel, and I had no idea of where to start. I I was afraid, I was excited all at the same time, and though I figured the best place to get start was to obey him and getting baptized, I waited two years between the time of when I was a believer and when I got baptized. By the way, if you haven't been baptized, allow me and Pastor Paul to be a part of that in your life. Next Sunday, May 30th, we'll be baptizing uh, about 20 people between the 9 and the 11 a.m. service. So we're really excited about that. But it's, it's not too late if you want to take that step and obey the Lord and declare your faith publicly. I would love to baptize you next week. I was baptized on Sunday, Sunday, July 21st, 2013, and the next month of my life was the most challenging of my life. My dog, my lifelong companion, a Labrador retriever named Dudley, died at the age of 15. My car's transmission blew up. It was a Ford Taurus. I should have known. And I broke up with my girlfriend of three years because I believed that the Lord was telling me to do so. Basically, my life was a really bad country song. And the following month was one of the lowest in my life. It seemed like everything was empty and fruitless and dark. I was 120 pounds at the beginning of this, and a month and a half later when I entered Bible college, I was 111 pounds. I couldn't eat. I couldn't even pick up the scriptures for a month. All I could do was whisper desperate prayers. I I was overcome. My mother, who has always been my greatest encourager in my calling to ministry, looked at me and said, Dylan, don't you see the enemy is trying to discourage you? He knows what God will do if you continue to follow him. You see, waiting on God is one of the most necessary and difficult parts of the Christian life. Waiting through silence, waiting through heartache, waiting through the the rain and the cold of winter like the almond, but that winter is necessary to provide what God intends Waiting will not be fruitless, and rays of light will cut through and produce fruit sooner than you think. You must simply give God time to germinate. The symbol attached to the menorah for the Israelites' eyes to consider was that whenever God seems delayed, take heart, he will perform his word, and he will do it quickly. He's watching, and he's hastening. You're meant to be filled with faith and encouragement when you see this tree. It's a symbol of God's faithfulness and encouragement. What is God's presence like? It's hopeful and it's encouraging. His his presence makes you remember, my life is not hopeless. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will not grow hungry, but I will see fruit. His light produces life. His light produces fruit, and even if it takes time, even if the winter is upon you, the dawn is coming and spring is on the way. Your harvest will be quick and it will be full. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, blessed are those who wait for the Lord. 
If you are in a fruitless, frustrating, dark, and despairing season of life, remember the almond. God will not abandon you. He watches over you. He is not slow to fulfill his promise as some consider slow. He will hasten to you and you can call out to him, trust him, and wait on him because you can trust the word of the Lord because the one who is faithful watches over it. The Bible opens with a tree giving us death. The menorah is a tree giving us hope. And the Bible ends with a tree giving us life in Revelations 22. This symbol is meant for you to look forward with hope, expectancy, and faith. So do not give up Lowell Assembly of God Northeast Christian Church. Do not let the enemy discourage you. Keep going because there is hope and blessing ahead for you. Christ Jesus hung on a tree of death, and God redeemed that tree to bring you life. He will not fail you now. There is hope for your life, hope for your family, hope for your children, hope for your marriage, hope for your parents, and hope for for your future. God watches over his word in your life to perform it, and he never fails. What is God's presence like? It's hopeful and it's encouraging. And even in the cold death of winter, God employs the worst to cause fruit to blossom, and he will do that for you. When the Israelites gazed upon that golden almond tree, they knew they were given hope in the worst of circumstances. They can be like that. They can be durable and patient in their faith. Why? Because God is faithful to perform his word. As it is written, blessed is the man who meditates on his word day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit both in and out of its season. So whether it's hot and dry in your life or the wintry cold of rain and snow, you may feel like you're in the winter right now, but a new season is coming. And I'm here to remind you that God brings life out of death. Blessed be the Lord God, because he is doing a new thing. Do you not now see it? Hope comes with God. Next, listen to verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. First, I want to focus on the latter part of this verse. The lamp shall be set up to give light. Very simply, the presence of God illuminates. God sheds light on the path. He guides our way. And it's really hard to overstate the need to see where you're going. As painful as it would be to lose all my other senses, I would prefer most of all to keep my sight because light is pleasant to the eyes. When I was in college, I interned in Florida, mistake number one, for a pastor living in a rural, rural area that was very impoverished. By the way, we're going to be doing ministry right after church in an urban area downtown called Serve Our City, and you're welcome to join us. This pastor was ministering in a very impoverished rural area. He planted a church on the edge of Ocala National Forest, where uh, many people struggle to maintain even ba basic necessities like electricity. And during my three-month stay with him, I lived on this compound on a lake in the middle of nowhere. 
And my first night there, no word of a lie, no exaggeration, there was coiled up in the toilet a five-foot snake. And my welcome to Florida is him pulling it out, whipping it around, smacking it on the ground, and then shooting it in the head. And I thought to myself, I am in the wrong place. <laughs> One night, after a long day of ministry, I was walking to the dumpster at night. It was maybe like 11 o'clock at night, maybe midnight. I was going to throw some trash away. And I looked up, and from about me to the center of the sanctuary away, there was a bear. And I froze. A spotlight some distance away shed just enough of a dim outline on the bear for me to see it. Otherwise, I would have walked right into him and completely missed him. He blended right in. And so I backed away slowly, and for some reason, like some National Geographic special popped into my head, and I'm like, I probably shouldn't run from this thing. So I like walked as slowly as I could to a building nearby. If I died, it's National Geographic's fault. But I'm not really sure if the bear didn't see me or just didn't care about me, but I made it to the building. Either way, I didn't stick around to investigate. And I decided, after almost becoming a midnight snack, I'm not a good fit for ministry in Florida. In fact, human beings aren't fit for Florida. It's kind of a crazy place. But thank God for the dim spotlight, or I may not be here with you today, because it's important to see in the darkness. And God's presence is like that. The Lord will light your path, and he does it to guide you through darkness. The Israelites, through the menorah, are meant to constantly see God as being a source of light. In the wilderness, he would lead them as a blazing pillar of fire to light up the night. At the end of the book of Revelations, the new heavens and the new earth are described as having no sun and no moon and no more nighttime because God dwells in their midst, and he is the only light the world needs. I'm reading through the book of Isaiah the prophet right now each night, and the words of Isaiah 9-2 just happened to be part of my daily reading as I was preparing this message. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You are going to experience darkness in your life. At times in our lives, we are engulfed, swallowed by the chasm that seems to have no bottom and no end. And for some, it comes through disease, others, the death of a loved one, the anxieties and the dreads of life, the depression of the spirit, the doubts of the mind, and the longings of the heart can cast us all into darkness, as Isaiah puts it, deep darkness. Some Catholic mystics call it the dark night of the soul. This darkness feels unending and it tugs at you every night as you drift to sleep and crushes you with dread every morning as you wake up. The author of The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald, once said, in the dark night of the soul, it's always three o'clock in the morning. And some of you may be there right now. You may feel you sit in the very shadow of death where not a ray of light can penetrate. But the scriptures say in Psalm 139 that even if you were in the depths of hell, God is able to reach you even there. You may feel that you're in a proverbial hellscape, the deepest, darkest night of the soul, and in the very shadow of death itself, but God can light any darkness. As it says in Micah 7, 8, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. 
And David says in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Whether you were in darkness by your own doing, or you've been cast there against your will, God will not leave you in darkness. He will cut through it. And it may feel like three o'clock in the morning, but the dawn is coming. With God as your Father, the darkness will part before you as the Red Sea. It cannot stand when you know that God loves you, calls you his child. You can stare down the abyss and it will not stare back. It will cower and flee. As John the Apostle says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. As Jesus promised in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world and whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. You may walk through darkness, but you will not walk in it. God will keep you from the destruction of the enemy, from the touch of the evil one, and the darkness he commands. And the dark night of the soul can end in the light of the true menorah, Jesus Christ. It's through his light that we approach the presence of God. It's by his light that we pass through the torn curtain and experience the joyful and peaceful presence of God himself. What is God's presence like? It's light in the darkness. And many of you sit in dark places now like Micah, and God has come to cut through the darkness and shine on you. Arise, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Lastly, I want you to listen to part of verse 37 once more. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall give light to the space that is in front of it. The number seven is interesting on the Bible. One other area where the number seven is mentioned in context of lampstands is Revelation chapter one. Jesus is seen walking around seven menorahs or, or seven lampstands, excuse me, and he turns to John and says to him in Revelations 1.20, the seven lampstands that you see are the seven churches. Specifically, Jesus is talking about the seven churches in the area of modern-day Turkey, or it was then called Asia Minor. Jesus, in this vision, equates the menorah to the church as a symbol of what we're supposed to be. In fact, Jesus says in Revelations 2.5 that if a church fails to be what they're supposed to be, he will come and take away their lampstand. Now, churches then didn't have actual lampstands, but it's symbolic for what they and we are supposed to be. It was a symbol to God's people in both the Old and the New Covenants that we're meant to shine into the darkness the same way God shines into darkness. Of all the things that Jesus says of himself, he applies only one of them to his disciples as well. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And in John chapter 5, verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus is the light, and we are the light. We're like torches that he comes along and lights ablaze, and we carry his flame to others. As followers of Jesus, your life is meant to shine into the darkness that surrounds you, into the darkness of other people's lives, to give light to them. You are meant to lead people into the very presence of God 
the same way the menorah illuminates this area so that people can approach the presence of God, you are meant to light people's way so that they can approach God for themselves. You aren't just meant to do nice things, by the way, and be kind. You're literally lighting the way for people to encounter God. That is the menorah's function, and that is your function. Why do we feed the poor? Why do we do things like serve our city? Why do we fund missions? Why do we counsel the dad downtrodden with our counseling ministries? Why do we do any of this? It's so that people can see God. Because if all they see is you and your good works, they're still hopelessly in the dark. You are intended in everything that you do to point to God to lead people to him, both by your works and your deeds. As the old saying goes, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but if you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. The church and each of you as the individual members that compose it are meant to shine the light of Christ to the world as living menorahs. One of my favorite movies of all time, and I think it's one of Pastor Paul's favorite as well, he watches it every time he goes to Israel on the plane, is a film called The Kingdom of Heaven, directed by Ridley Scott. It's about a man's journey in the times of the Crusades. And if there was ever a time in church history where the church wasn't what it was supposed to be, where the lampstand was missing, it was the Crusades. They were a black eye upon the church. Uh, actually, I have a little coin here from the Crusades, and I know uh, our man on the camera today is Kwaku. He's uh, one of our teenagers. Let's give it up for Kwaku. He's doing a great job. He's doing a great job. Thank you, Kwaku. Uh, by the way, if you need a ministry to serve in, Kwaku could use your hand. Uh, but I know Kwaku is a history buff, so Kwaku, before you leave today, I am giving you this little coin from the Crusades. It's from uh, the Fourth Crusade, so there you go. This is a little present for you, man. But uh, it's, a, it's a great movie. In the Kingdom of Heaven, early in the movie, a bishop is talking to a greedy priest, trying to convince him of the error of his ways and trying to correct his thinking. And he says to him what I think is one of the best lines in the movie. There is so much done in Christendom of which Christ would be incapable. I often ask, would Jesus do it thusly? And I myself often pray to the Lord. And I ask him that I wouldn't be a hindrance to people coming to him. That my life would line up with my words so that Christ's light could break through unabated. Like the church in the Crusades, there is no nothing worse than what is supposed to be light being darkness instead. Jesus warned his disciples of this in Matthew chapter 6. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you in, is darkness, how great is that darkness? To translate that a little bit, your eye is the gateway to your soul. If you're looking at light, you're full of light. But if you choose to longingly gaze upon darkness, you'll be full, full of darkness, and what is supposed to be good in you becomes evil. How much worse is it then? when we're supposed to be the very light of Christ and people look at the church and see us obsessed with power and fleshly desire and money, not only have we hindered ourselves, but others from entering the kingdom of heaven. 
You are meant to be a beacon, not a basket, a lighthouse instead of a lid. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a royal priesthood, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your life is meant to be an illustrated sermon, a living menorah, a testament to the light of God. And one of the prayers that I pray most often for myself and I encourage you to pray is, God, please, may I bring honor to you and not shame. It is my aim in life to bring as many people into the kingdom of God with me as I, as I can, to live as a bastion of light, a city set on a hill, and I shudder to think that I am capable of putting a basket on it. I do not want to stand before God and have to give an account of why my actions did not line up with what I said I believed. How much damage has been done by charlatans and frauds and fakes who have claimed the name of Christ only to bring disrepute to the very Lord that they claim to serve. How often is the world able to say, see, I told you they're hypocrites. And I am not speaking of our own weakness and propensity to sin. As John the Apostle says, if anyone says they are without sin, they are a liar and the truth is not in them. I am speaking of those fools who think they can reap the benefits of a relationship with Christ apart from any of its responsibilities. Those who claim to know an infinitely loving God and then proceed to live for finite, cheap counterfeits here and now instead. What is the world seeing from your lampstand? Are you illuminating their path or allowing them to stumble towards the precipice in unabated darkness? And even if you feel inadequate in this moment, I am confident of better things for each and every one of you. I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And my aim, and I believe God's aim, is to preach confidence back into you. Even if you're at your lowest of lows today, God specializes in redeeming what seems dark and hopeless. I quoted earlier the prophet Micah speaking of his own sin. Listen to it again. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. Some of you, like him, are sitting in darkness. You think, I've sinned too much, so I may as well sit down. Or life has let me down too many times. Better to sit here than to get up again and try. But you are destined to be living proof of what God is able to do. You have sat for too long in darkness. It is time to rise, shine, and become the men and the women that Christ intends you to be. Even in your worst moments of sin, hypocrisy, hopelessness, and darkness, God is able to find his way through to you. He can fashion you into the kind of person who declares his excellencies because he's called you out of darkness into light. You may feel inadequate, I'm sure that Micah did, but he didn't live in the darkness. He just sat down there for a minute. And the enemy would love to rejoice and cheer when you're down and out, but like Micah, God will plead your cause and he will bring you out to the light 
to be a living menorah. Micah knows what it is to go from the deepest darkness of sin to the glory of experiencing God in the light. He went from sinner to author of the Bible. What makes you think God can't do it for you? God is able to make anyone shine for him. Boaz, you can come to the keys this time. You might know what that's like. I know what that's like. To sit in darkness until the light of the Lord cuts through. And he made me into a little menorah, I myself. I am human, I am weak, but I am redeemed. There is darkness in me, but there is light too, and the darkness has not overcome it. What is the presence of God like? Yes, it's hopeful, yes, it's illuminating, but it is transformative. Don't forget what we said at the beginning. Light creates life. Light begets life. Life excuse me, light leads to life. When you soak in the light of Jesus, you'll find you start to glow just the same. God imparts his presence to you, to help you. He imparts his presence so that you can help others. His life and light is deposited in you. As King David prayed at one of the lowest points in his own life in Psalm 34, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shine and shall never be ashamed. Isaiah 29 says, Out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Listen, I'm not the person that I used to be. I still fight the same darkness. I still fight to kill my flesh daily, but I have no need to be ashamed and every reason to shine because I have been in the presence of Jesus. Do not sit down and put a light, a lid on your light. Move forward and shine into the lives of people around you. Before I became a Christian outside of my family, I don't believe a single person told me about Jesus. And I look back on it with amazement, both at my mother's consistent witness and the total lack of it by anyone else. What if you're the only glimpse of light someone will get? Will you show them Jesus? Will you tell somebody about Jesus, even if you don't feel qualified or adequate to do so? An imperfect light is better than no light at all. If not you, then who will do it? What if God's plan for your family and your co-workers and your friends lies in you bringing them hope and illumination and transformation? Christ's, Christ's light is beheld, looked upon, primarily through us as little menorahs. Is your light under a basket? As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And we are servants for your sake, for Jesus. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Can they see him in you? What if you're the only Bible someone reads? The only light in their darkness? What if your light is the only menorah somebody will ever see and hear about? What are they seeing? 
Maybe some of you haven't even encountered Christ yet as the guiding light in your Christ. And I'm pleased to be able to pray with you today to change that. Others among us have sat down in darkness along the way and let the light dim. And lastly, some of us have covered up our light in shame, in embarrassment, or maybe in weariness. Christ wants to light your lamp again, again, to shine not just on you, but to shine through you. And my prayer for you, Lowell Assembly of God and Northeast Christian Church, is that you would learn what it is to shine and lead people behind the curtain into the very presence of God so that they could see God for themselves. That is what God intends us to be. That is the living menorah. Would you stand on your feet as we pray? Lord, thank you. First off, I lift up to those who have never known you, God. If you don't know Jesus, you've never given your life to him. You've never prayed to receive him. I want you to repeat after me, whether in your heart or out loud. Lord, I invite you into my darkness. I pray through your resurrection that you would bring light and life. Lord, be my Savior and my Lord. I commit myself to you in Jesus' name. Others among us, Lord, maybe we've sat down in darkness a little too long, whether in sin or in despair. Lord, we say with your prophet, though I sit in darkness, the Lord will lead me out to the light. Father, I pray that today you would cast aside people's darkness, that you would shine into their lives, that you would lead them forward in triumph and in hope. And Lord, for those who are putting their light under a basket, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see that the greatest hope of the world isn't a miracle, it's them for they are the living miracle and the living menorah. Father, I pray that you would give them courage and strength to shine brightly for Christ, to not just do good things, but to do good things so that people would glorify their Father who is in heaven. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We ask that you would shine bright in us. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys. God bless you. And we'll see you soon.